in jazz because that's the harmonic center. There's going to be a court. Let me pull up a chart. This is going to be the cold open. It's going to be 20 minutes of theory. <laughs> 20 minutes of music. I already theory. thought of that. <laughs> and then we'll lose all our listeners. Hey, Prague fans. Welcome to this month's episode of the Ultimate Prague Podcast Project. My name is Tony, and as always, I'm joined by Craig and Lee. We are three friends and Prague aficionados here to talk about the history and the craft of progressive music while sprinkling in our always unvarnished opinions of the music and the personalities that make this genre so great. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at UP3Show, as well as on our homepage at UP3Show.com. If you'd like to reach out to us via email, you can contact us at up3show at gmail.com. If you just can't get enough of the show, don't forget to hit the subscribe button on our podcast page at up3show.podbean.com or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. This makes sure that you never miss an episode and helps other prog fans find the show. So how are you guys doing this month? Hanging in there. Doing okay. A little, little tired. Nice. We were doing a little bit of banter, and it sounds like we've all got a lot going on. Um, we'll get into that, as we always do. We'll do a little bit of round of catching up. And so I'll talk to you first. Lee, what have you been up to since last month? Working like crazy. Uh, things are just super busy. But I did sit down in the studio this month and performed an interesting exercise. I know my theory, and I know my scales, major, minor, diminished, augmented, all that kind of stuff. But I've always struggled with modes like Dorian, Mixolydian, Phrygian, all that. And so with the help of a little tutoring from Craig, I sat down and I put a bunch of MIDI comp lines together. I did a straight rock and roll 145, and then Craig sent me over a 251. And I just played those on a keyboard and put them in the loop, just doing different solos on top of them to kind of see what the different modes sounded like. And it's been a very interesting exercise. I have something to share with you that I learned today. Okay. The theme to The Simpsons. Yeah, Danny Elfman. That is done in the Mixolydian That's mode. Mixolydian? Oh, yeah, right. Mixolydian, sorry. Cool. Yep. Mixolydian. That's like the kids' TV network, as like I grew up in the 80s and 90s. <laughs> with, with goop and all that kind of <laughs> stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, the Rugrats on Mixolydian. <laughs> <laughs> and they're all singing songs in the appropriate mode. Um, in a weird yeah, key. Right. <laughs> so that's really cool, Lee. Yeah, that's really drilled at home for me about when they're useful and what they sound like. Uh, what have you been up to, Craig? I uh, just got back from San Jose for a work trip. First one in three years and probably the last one for another three years because of the way the economy's going. Did stop into our favorite record store, Rasputin Records. Shout out right. to Rasputin. Bought a bunch of jazz CDs. Mm. No, and, uh, you? I had to, you know. Yeah, of course. You probably bought them out. I spent a lot of time on the jazz aisle. You know, it's funny for being a prog podcast. Craig comes here and talks about jazz all the time, and I come here and talk about metal all the time. <laughs> I love it. I think it's great. We get all the bases covered. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, I went to a country music... No, I'm just kidding. Whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> all right, we all right. went from jazz right, we and rock yeah, and metal right. to country? So, hey, Prog fans, we're now looking for a new co-host. Okay, anyway, uh, no, I... Played some music today with uh, the little boulder combo I play with. We have nice. a, our second gig next Sunday. Cool. And uh, we're getting paid uh, nothing uh, for it. It's, uh, <laughs> you know, as I they told, say in the industry, Craig, you're getting paid an exposure. Well, I told the guy, it's like crack. The first one's free. <laughs> uh, what else? I did some stand-up in San Jose. Did a few minutes nice. of stand-up. Where, where'd you do that? I did it at uh, a bar called Woodham's. Uh, every Monday night for like the past 10 years, except for during the pandemic, they've had open mic. And uh, one of my coworkers said that she wanted to try stand up. Oh, wow. So I kind of shepherded her through her first time. Very and cool. uh, I figured, well, if I'm there, I'll, I'll do five minutes too. So you did a tight five? It was more of a flaccid five because it's been a while. Oh, God. <laughs> Great. <laughs> it didn't take oh, long. Earning that E rating right up front. <laughs> yeah. All right. But uh, nah, I did, did a couple new ones, a couple old ones. And uh, that's pretty much it. Nice. How about you, Tony? What are you doing? Uh, we talk a lot about our text thread, 
And after we recorded the main body of this show, you and Lee just like ran off with like talking about modes and like all these different things. Right. And it got me interested in like noodling around. So I got out my MIDI controllers and I wasn't quite gelling for me there. Mm -hmm. So what I got out and played with instead was my stylophone. And that was starting to gel. So then I was able to take that and take it over to my guitar and noodle a little bit on my guitar. But what ultimately came that I was really interested in this month was as I was doing that, I needed to record some things. And I started experimenting with how different instruments need to be set up differently. Because it's one of those studio things. I'm always interested in like the back end studio geekiness of it. And I learned a little bit there. It was, it was pretty cool. Like my stylophone, like the settings I want to do to really get a good sound out of that. I need to do more work to it than I need my guitar or, or a keyboard or something. So it was, it was just interesting. Great. Nice. Do we also like to talk about what we're listening to? So I'll swing it back around to you again, Lee. What have you been listening to this month? Man, a couple big things. The first one is Sam Vallon, the guitarist for Caligula's Horse, uh-huh. released his single Flicker. And it is fantastic. I think that guy is such a good musician. It reminds me quite a bit of Archeco. Nice. But this is pretty much all him, except he did bring a drummer on board. So you can find that on Bandcamp is the only place I could find it. And what's really interesting about it is if you spend eight bucks on it to get the single, you get all the stems that make up the mix. So you can get an orchestra stem, a drum stem, a rhythm line stem. It's really good. Oh, that's really cool. I'm going to have to it's really go cool. look it up because I, I like messing yep. around with that in my DAW. That's really cool. Yeah, it's great. Nice. Uh, what about you, Craig? Well, you know, being this is a prog podcast, I'll tell you about the two jazz things I've been listening to. <laughs> 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 I've been listening to saxophone players, John Coltrane and Charlie Parker, mostly recently. Mm-hmm. Cool. Especially because Charlie Parker really is considered one of the fathers of bebop. And bebop is considered the basis from which all jazz has sprung, according to my latest jazz teacher. And so I'm trying to familiarize myself with a lot of what Charlie Parker does, his lines, his phrasing, his rhythm. And then there's a couple of songs here and there where there's a good piano solo. And if you go online, you can find them transcribed. So I'm stealing licks from famous piano solos. Plagiarism. Yeah, I'm totally plagiarizing. It's not plagiarism. No, no, no. In industry, it's called reuse. No, it's totally rooted in (laughs) improvisation. Plagiarism. It's great. It all stems from those marketing careers we have. Yep. But anyway, yeah, any album will do. They're all good. Nice. Cool. What about you, Tony? Mine for this month, I realized, I don't even know how I missed this, but somewhere over the summer, the new Seventh Wonder album came out called The Testament. I totally missed that, too. And so as soon as I realized that, I went and purchased it and have been listening to it pretty much nonstop. Okay. I'd pre-ordered the remaster and reissues of Conception's first two albums and was like really looking forward to listening to those because they've got some new remixed versions of tracks. And then I found the Seventh Wonder album and like I've just been way down on that. I have to say, a criticism that I've had of Tommy Karavik in previous Seventh Wonder albums was that I often didn't feel like his phrasings matched the s- instrumentation that was going on under his vocals, and it always felt a little discordant to me. Yeah. And I don't know if it's his time in Camelot that's taught him how to mesh with the music more, but this album is really, really great in that way. Okay, I'll have to get it. Yeah, definitely. I recommend checking that out. Cool. If you're one of those metal guys like me and you're crossing over into the prog space, Seventh Wonder in general is a great band to listen to, to come over and make the transition. Yes. Awesome. That's great. So Lee, what kind of prog news do you have for us this month? Yeah. So I just mentioned the new Sam Vellon single, Flicker. Um, That's out on Bandcamp. Mm -hmm. The band ORK, I don't know how much you guys know about this. But their fourth album, Scream Nasium, is coming out October 21st. Um, If you don't know much about them, this is Colin Edwin of Porcupine Tree, Pat Mastelato. Oh, nice. Mm -hmm. We all know him from King Crimson and Stickman and all that. Really, really good band, so I recommend them highly. Tony just brought up Seventh Wonder. I totally spaced on that one, so I highly recommend that band as well. We mentioned New Threshold, November 18th. Mm -hmm. New Devin Townsend, October 28th. 
I know that Rain's second album, Radio Silence, is nearing completion, but I don't have a date for that yet. Pattern Seeking Animals is about to release their fourth album. And I know that's near completion because they've been making a bunch of posts about it, doing mm-hmm. cleanup tracks, um, things like congas and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I know Kairos has an album in post-production, but no date. And I know Haken has an album in post-production, but no date. And then finally, I have to give a huge shout out to Craig because he brought this last season to our attention. And I, you and I both gave him a bunch of grief about it, but he was right. Mariah Carey is releasing an alt-rock album. I couldn't believe it. Oh, my God. When you brought that up, I thought you were smoking Colorado weed or something, but it was actually covered in an article. Apparently, while she was recording one of her pop disco albums, she was secretly heading off to a studio at night and recording alt-rock tracks under a band named Chick. And... Never got released, and they've dug all the tapes up, and now they're going to turn around and re-release it. Have you heard any any of it? No, and I'm kind of afraid to, but <laughs> I think I have to now that I've brought it up. So I thought you were going to say, I'm really looking forward to it. I'll be the one to listen to Mar- Mariah Carey's alt-rock album. So yeah, you, you take that one for the team there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. You don't know, though. You might be surprised. Yeah, you never know. I'm I'm actually intrigued. But see, here's the thing. In my moral integrity, I have to wonder, do I want her to be good at this? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I, do. I don't think you're in any Come danger on. of her taking over Prague, so. She has a QVC channel, man. She's like, sells all jewelry and <laughs> shit. Craig, you, you're not helping <laughs> this case at all. <laughs> she could be a shark. <laughs> she could. You never know. Anyway, that's the news. Awesome. Thank you, Lee. And Craig, why don't you tell us about something unheard of? Something unheard of. Well, this one, we're going to be a little different this time. Tonight is Jewish New Year's Eve. I did not know that. It is uh, Erev Rosh Hashanah, as we say uh, in the tribe. Oh, okay. And I don't talk much about my Jewish heritage, but the Abramson family is about three generations removed from living in Russian shtetls. Okay. Do you know what a shtetl is? I do not. Tony? No. Okay, so a shtetl is basically like a dusty Eastern European, Western Russian town populated by Jews that the uh, Russian government tried to exterminate around the turn of the century. So that's why so many Jews emigrated from that part of the world to the U.S. around that time and started the entertainment industry and took over um, the media and did all the things that we did. Oh, shoot, I'm not supposed to talk about that. (laughs) <laughs> too late oh, shit. the first rule of fight club is you don't talk about fight right. club. yeah the first rule of controlling the media is not talking about how you control the media but anyway me and my kids used to joke that uh we're descended from shtetl trash we among us the three of us have often joked it would be really cool if there was Prague klezmer right which uh is intriguing because klezmer is very popular in Prague, but that's a whole different thing I've listened to Prague in Prague. Yeah, you can listen to Prague in Prague, or you can listen to Klezmer in Prague, but you can't listen to Prague in Klezmer, I think is how that works. Okay, I, I'm, I'm trying to follow. Okay. So anyway, I was not able to find a Prague Klezmer band, but in my search, I found a song called, you ready? Heavy Shtetl. <laughs> <laughs> so uh-huh. let, me, uh, let me share, and I, I put together a little little clip of it. That's actually got a killer bass Yeah, line. that's a great bass. How freaking cool is that? That's really cool. <laughs> I, yeah, like, I that. like that. That band is called Stratospherius. It's the brainchild of a guy named Joe Deninzon, and I'm sure I'm not pronouncing it right. His music is really impressive. The reason I know about The Simpsons, he has this incredible kick-ass version of The Simpsons song.
Joe Denenzon has been hailed by critics as the Jimi Hendrix of the violin because of his innovative style on seven-string electric violin. Jeez. He's worked with The Who, 50 Cent, Cheryl Crow, Bruce Springsteen, Phoebe Snow, Everclear, Richie Blackmore, Smokey Robinson, Aretha Franklin, Robert Bonfiglio, Les Paul, and as a soloist with the New York City Ballet and Jazz at Lincoln Center, which in the jazz world, it does not get any better than that. Mm-hmm. He's also the lead singer and electric violinist for Stratospherius, the band that we just heard. They've released five critically acclaimed solo CDs. He's written a million string quartets and solo pieces. He's also a member of another band called Sweet Plantain String Quartet, which combines Latin, jazz, and hip-hop, and classic music, and has toured throughout Europe and the U.S., and they are currently opening for Renaissance on a tour through the Northeastern United States. Mm. So, yeah, find out about him on Spotify, YouTube, Facebook. Nice. Dude's name's Joe Denenzon. Really, really great progressive jazz stuff, as well as a little bit more mainstream progressive. And and I don't know if I mentioned, he sings and plays violin at the same time, which I have never seen anybody do. That's really cool. That's great. Back to you, Tony. That certainly fits the title of your segment. That was unheard of. unheard of. Prog, klezmer, electric violin. That's a 10-minute song. I mean, it just kicks ass. Yeah, and that bass line was just killer, man. I mean, it reminded me of like Les Claypool from Primus. Yeah, a lot I mean, of spanking, like a lot of spanking. And that was a live track, by the way. That's killer. Nice. And so I'll send you guys the link to listen to the whole thing because it really is, it really is great. Yeah, we'll put it in the show notes. And so without further ado, let's go talk about some improv stuff. This is going to be an interesting episode, you guys. We're going to talk about improvisation in Prague. I don't really think we want to have like a music theory discussion. I think we really want to talk about the music itself. Our regular listeners, both of them, know that I'm uh, doing a lot of jazz piano. And really, the fundamental thing about jazz is it's all focused on improvisation. 100%. That's what it's about. You play a couple of bars of a melody, and then you solo for as long as you want. And then you take it out with another measure of the melody. And Prague does that a little bit too, but it really got me thinking about improvisation just in general and how they do it in Prague. And we started wondering about what songs are improvised and what solos are improvised and what's written in the studio and what's not. And I'm not sure I came up with any rules, Mm -hmm. but I came up with a journey that we could just talk about the different aspects of it. I don't know if we're going to wrap up with a thesis statement or not. Cool. One of the things that really got me thinking about improvisation at a young age was when I stole my sister's Yes Songs album, and on it is my favorite version of Starship Trooper, because it has an awesome synthesizer solo by Rick Wakeman. That was my introduction to Rick Wakeman. think that is just a freaking killer synthesizer solo and i'm pretty sure i have listened to that eight kajillion times uh-huh. it's interesting that that's one of the first things you went to because yes songs was also a big influence for me for solos because mm-hmm. that's the first time i'd heard 10 12 15 minute solos sure mm-hmm. on a live album what did you like on that album well for me it turned into chris squire which i think we're going to get there yes we will you know, Yes was an introduction to a lot of people. Yeah. This is 14, 13-year-old Craig. Mm-hmm. By the way, the thing about this solo is he really does play it different every time. I've seen Yes a million times. The synthesizer solo at that point in the performance is always different. Okay. But when he finishes, Steve Howe does his guitar thing, and it's pretty much the same. So I'm going to play that just so listeners can kind of key in on that. Love that. (laughs) 
when Steve Hell plays that, he doesn't really stray too far from it. Mm-hmm. He always plays the opening couple of measures, and it actually is a little bit like a jazz song in that respect, in that it always comes back to this, and you always know it's there. That's your signal that the thing's ending. So it's a solo, but it's not improv. I think that's correct. Right. But Rick Wegman's would be improv. Rick Wegman's is absolutely improv and gets to a thing that we're going to talk about a lot more. When is a solo not an improv because he's doing the same thing every time? Right. And does it matter? And does it matter? That's the thing. I'm not the music theory geek. I'm not the jazz geek. I'm just coming at it as maybe a listener in this episode. And I'm like, do I give a shit? Mm -hmm. If every time it's an improv, I mean, there's got to be a moment of inspiration, right? At that point, at the creative process, Mm -hmm. there was inspiration and an improvisation happened to create the thing. Even if forever after that, you play the exact same thing. I'm not sure it matters if when they're doing it live, do a new version every time. Tony, you absolutely hit it on the head. And that is music is divine in that it truly does come from nothing. Mm -hmm. Right. I'm going to write a song. And I'm going to sit down at my keyboard and I'm going to play four notes. And those four notes, for the purpose of the song, have never existed before. They've come from nothing. Came out of the ether. You're improvising. Yep. And at some point, it's a song. So you went from nothing to something. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's the creative process. You know, it's the blank lump of clay to it's eventually a pitcher. Yeah. I agree with all that. But for me, virtuosity in the moment definitely matters. The ability to improv on the spot is something I revere in a lot of jazz musicians. Sure. When I know that there's a musician on stage that is truly improving, my estimation of him has just gone up a notch. I agree with that. But there seems to be somewhere it's not been spoken by any of us, this belief that when a solo happens, it intrinsically has to always be improv. And... That's the part that I want to hopefully get to in this conversation is sussing some of that out. So this next thing I want to play, and I've spoken about it before, early Genesis, when Steve Hackett was playing with them, a lot of the great guitar solos that he played were written out. Mm -hmm. So let's listen to another brilliant piece of Tony Banks writing played by (laughs) Steve Hackett. Absolutely killer guitar playing, beautiful sound, excellent tone, amazing performance, and it's played note for note every night. You and I have watched him do this a couple of times, and now he'll go on as long as he wants to. Yeah, he'll just jam. Same thing with the end of Supper's Ready when he plays that live. Yes. One thing, it's sad, (laughs) kind of, that he didn't really get to cut loose with Genesis when he was with him. But on the other hand, bless his heart, man. Yes. He's living his dream now. I follow him and Mad Sylvan on Facebook, and they are just loving life, man. They're touring the world and playing the old songs and just loving it. It's, it's a wonderful thing. Yeah. And yeah, he'll just wail for 15 minutes on the end of Supper's Ready. It's gorgeous. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And just to think that Tony Banks, like, here, here's your solo. Do not deviate. Uh-huh. I mean, the <laughs> level of sort of... Um, you don't want to say arrogance. I know that. Dictatorship, I guess, in that band. <laughs> trying to varnish yeah i was trying to tone it down but certainly structured and certainly the methodical but again squared it's you know it's no yes. well i think that's actually the word i was looking for mm-hmm. sometimes there is a solo and the solo is intended to be a specific way mm-hmm. sure obviously with what tony did there and that's what i was getting at before of i don't think intrinsically a solo has to always be an improv sure look at the entire new frost record It's got a million instrumental breaks. Mm -hmm. None of them are improvs. They are instrumental breaks. Mm -hmm. That's a good way to put it. Yep. Because a lot of times there's a solo, but it's just a repeat of a melody. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But when you read articles, say when Pink Floyd was recording The Wall, the producer is trying to get a particular sound for a solo. And those are examples where the producer will have the guitar player play a solo 
listen to it. Ah, it's not quite what I want to try it again. And they'll do, you know, 87 takes. Sometimes they'll piece it together. Mm-hmm. A solo in the studio, getting it in one take isn't the same as getting it on the first take. And it's not the same as improvising on the spot. And a lot of bands are kind of famous for piecing things together. You know, you make the note that Rush, Alex Lifeson used to joke that, oh, crap, I got to learn that solo now that they spliced together on the album. Right. Mm-hmm. Frank Zappa famous for that. You know, he just recorded every solo he ever performed and spliced that together on Joe's Garage in most cases. Mm-hmm. Well, and you're talking about solos a lot, but mm-hmm. the way Pink Floyd starts, they are totally an improv band live. Yes. And every night it was a completely different performance. And they might go on for 30, 45 minutes on one song, just completely improv. Mm-hmm. And was David Gilmore with them at that point? I mean, I know he's on metal. Yeah, he had guessed it off and on quite a bit as Sid Barrett was kind of losing it. But Gilmore was there from the second album on, so I think that's Saucer Full of Secrets. When you talk about stuff in the studio versus live, the Steve Wilson album, Hand Cannot Erase, has what I think are two of the most amazing instrumentals all in one song, and that's on Regret Number 9. So that's Adam Holtzman doing 30 seconds of the keyboard part, which I just think is one of the most beautifully constructed solos of all time, in my humble opinion. So now let's listen to Guthrie Govan, the solo that he contributed. First of all, Adam Holtzman is an amazing musician. He played with Miles. He's played with a ton of people. Having said that, when they play that song live, because we've seen them perform it live two or three times, and each time, I got to tell you, I was disappointed because I think my brain wanted to hear it note for note because I've listened to it so many times. Mm. Right. And I know that Adam Holtzman is an amazing improvisational player. And I kick myself for the times that I've seen him live and not letting myself absorb it and instead waiting for the song that he didn't play, kind of. Yeah. For me, it's a two-edged sword when a solo is, like, really good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is a double-edged sword when it's an iconic song. Sure. Mm-hmm. Like, for me, a good example is Roundabout by Yes. That B3 solo that Rick Wegman does, I know that note by note. So when I go see them live, that's the way I want to hear it. Mm-hmm. I don't know Adam Holtzman's solo the way you do in Regret 9. I mean, I like it, but I don't have it memorized. Oh. So when I was there, I was just able to just go, oh, cool. Yeah, you were digging. I was watching you. You were like, this is fucking great. And, and I wanted to say, dude, this sucks. I want to leave now. He's <laughs> not <Right. laughs> doing it right. I want to get back to Guthrie Govan, because he actually has two incredibly amazing solos on Hand Cannot Erase. And the reason I am bringing these up is I'm pretty sure I read that he did invent these solos in the studio. I'm not sure if it's one take or a couple of takes spliced together, but this is absolutely Guthrie's baby. Dude is such a good player. He's such a good guitarist. So bummed I couldn't see uh, Aristocrats a couple weeks ago. Right. I think also of the current incarnation of King Crimson that's been touring for the past couple of years. They do these medleys. Yeah. In some of these iconic solos, there are 
key little phrases or passages that all of our brains connect with. Sure. And what a lot of the music geeks like is give me those little parts and then do a bunch of improv in between and then hit the next little part. And as long as you give me those tent poles that I can latch onto, go nuts. Mm -hmm. I think that's what makes me thread that needle in the middle. And that's what a lot of the iconic solos are, like Comfortably Numb. If you see Mm -hmm. Roger Waters do it, they'll play. And then, but they'll still jam on it for 10 minutes. Yeah. And then come back to the right thing at the end, which, by the way, gets back to how jazz songs are structured. What Tony was saying reminds me of how you introduced this episode. Mm -hmm. Right. Here's the melody that's a common theme we'll come back to. That's the grounding point. And then, other than that, we're going to wander off here Mm -hmm. until we come back to that grounding point again. Right. You want to hear an interesting example of that that's really hard to catch? But if you pay attention, He's doing exactly that. So this is an Alan Holdsworth song. It plays ahead at the beginning, and then he solos for like 20 minutes, and then comes back at the end and plays the head again. So I put together a a couple of clips that have those three things together, and you almost have to see if you can hear it, because it's Alan Holdsworth, and it's so bizarre. comes the B part. It's Jeff Berlin in the background. God, I was going to ask. So good. I love Jeff Berlin. Okay, now here comes the solo. It's the same chord structure, but now it's soloing. hard to even tell that it's the same form, but it is. That solo that he played, if we stuck it in a DAW and took that solo and put the beginning of it on top of it, it would all go together. Okay. And the level of musicianship that they can pull that off with is amazing. So I'll now play the end of the song where it comes back to the head. I don't know if any of that translated, but I just listened to that and I'm blown away. Love that stuff. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. That's actually live. That's about as out there as I think we'll get on music. You're going to talk about this in terms of jazz, but I think this goes throughout this new prog rock metal that we talk about. Mm-hmm. I think Archeco does exactly what you're talking about. I agree. They set up a head, they mm-hmm. set up a melody, mm-hmm. and then a guy will go take off on some long solo. But it always comes back to the head, to the melody, so you have a grounding point. Yeah. Bookends. Well, I even think about Lee the last time we went and saw Haken. Yeah. And when they did that extended version of Cockroach King, that's exactly what they did in the middle of that track. I agree. One other studio one that I want to talk about, it's a Steve Morse solo. And I want to talk about that one because I think Steve Morse does nail solos in one take. Mm Mm-hmm. He is that level of musician where his solos, almost none of them suck. So this is a thing that started floating around the internet during the pandemic, where he sat in on a band called Sidemen, 
and they got him to play a solo for a Jimi Hendrix song, Third Stone from the Sun. It's a good sound. Mm-hmm. Iconic Steve Morse solo. Just absolutely beautiful. Incredible tone. I heard somebody say he gets more expression out of his pinky playing the volume knob than most real guitar players get out of a floor full of boxes. He's one of those guys, every time you see him, similar structure. The solos will have a head, then they take off, and then they come back and do the head. And the solos just are always good since I've been kind of doing this jazz thing for a couple of years now, I wanted to talk about how jazz sometimes enters into the prog realm. So there's a jazz standard by Miles Davis called Solar, which has its own storied past because uh, some argue that Miles stole it from somebody else. But I'm going to play the head of that and a little tiny bit of the solo and then show you the Pat Metheny version, which I never realized was based on a jazz standard. And he just goes on and on and solos for a while, and then the piano plays over that. And it's, it's a jazz standard. It's, it's great. It's got good tone. It's off the album that if you can find an original version of it, it's worth you know hundreds and hundreds of dollars. I'm going to look in Rasputin Records next week, see if I can find it. Nice. Shout out to Rasputin. <laughs> and shout, yeah, shout out to Rasputin. Can't wait. Now here's the Pat Metheny version. See if you can even tell that it's the same song. I never had an appreciation for what he's pulling off until I started learning jazz standards. Man, talk about a bizarre and studied interpretation of a pretty simple chord progression. You say these are the, the same songs, basically. Mm-hmm. They are. What is the same between those two songs? What makes it the same? The chord progression. Is that it? Well, actually, the chord progression and the head melody. Oh, so he is copying the same melody as Miles. Yeah, he phrases it different. But it is the same melody, and I'm going to not do it justice, and it's going to sound stupid, but it's like... Okay. You know, so they both did that, but Pat Metheny, like, put accents in different places. And, yeah. But it was absolutely that melody. Trust me, I had to listen to it a couple of times right. before I kind of heard it, mm. which was kind of like that Alan Holdsworth song. And maybe that's why I kind of like some of that music, is it's hard. You have to work to hear it. I don't listen to it all the time, but sometimes it's fun. Well, I want to ask a meta question then about that. Sure. Coming back to this topic of wanting the solos to be improv live every time, is there a little bit of that, because I know it's hard, that is appealing to it? Like, is that what you were getting at earlier, Lee, of respecting the musicianship and being there when they show that off? Yeah. For me, these complicated pieces that Craig's been playing tonight with a lot of chord changes, to be able to improvise on those every night on your feet, the level of scales and knowledge you have to have to be able to do that. Yeah, for me, that is such a next level of musicianship. Mm-hmm. And to Tony's point, he'll do it different every night because that's what he does. Yeah, and I'm going to throw like another monkey wrench into that, right? Go because when I was in New York, I went and saw Jordan Rudis live. Right. Mm-hmm. This is a 100% a Tony thing. When I go to see Jordan Rudis with Dream Theater, I'm expecting to hear Dream Theater songs and mostly played note for note, like 90% maybe the album, maybe a little bit of go nuts on some solos. 
But when I went to see him in that show in New York, that show was billed exclusively as Jordan Rudis going nuts. Right. And so I wonder if context comes into play too. Sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, does it for you guys? It just really comes down to, I think, some musicians are better at improvisation than others. Yeah. We saw Joe Satriani, and I kind of didn't like it that much because it felt like it was just an avalanche of notes. I mean, it was fun, and I hate to always compare it to a Steve Morris, but I guess different people think different things are tasty. You know what I mean? Yeah, I know what you mean. Um, we just see that concert very differently. I thought Steve Morris really phoned it in. Oh, he might have. And I've always been a big Satriani fan because I think he follows exactly what you're describing here. He sets up a head, a melody, and then he takes off on solos. But he always kind of comes back to that. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. But then there's the subjective part. You know, do I like it? Yeah. <laughs> okay. And uh, no, you're exactly right. I mean, that's that's what he's doing. It really just might come down to I'm just not as spun up on Joe Satriani. I mean, I've got a couple albums and I've, you know, I've heard Surfing with the Aliens a whole bunch of times, but maybe I was just sad that Steve wasn't doing that well. <laughs> it was like, it was I, was, sick, man. I was depressed. I was depressed. Steve was bad. I like where your train of thought is going there, Craig. I would say even with Satriani and Petrucci comes into this, mm-hmm. there are some times where I listen to their solos and I'm like, I don't like this necessarily. It's not really tickling whatever guitar bone that I have that I want to have tickled. But I'm respecting of the challenge of what they're doing, right? Because these are guys that can play insanely fast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely get that feeling about a lot of Petrucci's solo material. And even like you were mentioning earlier, um, LTE's Rhapsody in Blue, Petrucci has some crazy parts in that. And I'm just in awe of his ability to do it. Let's listen to that right now. That little jam in C is so incredible. Mm-hmm. It's just phrased beautifully. It just fits with the song. And that's an example probably of, I know that they had performed that together a whole bunch of times live when they were touring, and they decided to include that in the album. So they have a lot of history of just working on the structure and what's going to go in it. And that's why that sounds so rich. To me, the whole the whole tune, not just that solo. Right. Uh, I wanted to throw in a keyboard solo. There's an Eddie Jobson solo that you wanted to share, Lee, and I'm going to play that. And I just want to talk about it because Eddie Jobson's another one of those guys that was everywhere in the '80s. what's great about that to me first of all it's a b3 and a leslie and you can't go wrong with a b3 or leslie it fucking cuts through everything right but to me that's a very structured solo because the song is changing key underneath him Mm -hmm. and this is one thing i mean about the virtuosity of it not only do you have to keep it melodically interesting you have to have such an intimate knowledge of modes and scales that you know where your common notes are as the song modulates underneath the solo But he also is changing between single notes, and he's adding chords back in, and that's what I really love. It's beautiful. Towards the end, he built that last chord up, really a note at a time towards the end of that solo. All right, I'm going to show my ignorance. What is that from? Uh, That's from Night After Night. Oh, okay. And that's live, by the way. 
Tony, you also contributed a a suggestion of Joost Vanderbroek. Oh my god, Joost Vandenbroek. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, if you're listening, Joost, uh, what is it, Joost? Joost Vandenbroek. Okay, got it. I had never heard of him, but you turned me on to him, Tony. This is great. So here's a organ solo from him. Man, that's nice. I wish they'd mixed him up a little bit. Yeah, it was it was kind of mushy. You got that from one of the live recordings, right? Yeah, I did. Yeah. So that was from one of the Arion live performances. He is just amazing. So for listeners, longtime listeners, there's your Arion <laughs> bingo right there. I snuck it in and didn't even say Arion. And I got Craig to do it for me. Yeah. <laughs> You're so, you are the most manipulative person in this trio. Um, but yeah. <laughs> One thing I like about that, I think, I mean, I don't know his setup, but you can hear a little distortion in there. Mm-hmm. And there are people that will drive a B3 through an amp, and it is a great sound. Oh, it's deep purple, man. Yeah, exactly. John Lord, very deep purple. And I do believe that that's what they did for those live performances. Yeah, it sounds overdriven. And when he's playing, he's got the biggest smile on his face. Because I got it from YouTube, and it's like he's just having the time of his life. That's great. Yeah, I got to say that the drums underneath that—that—that's a fucking killer drummer too. Ed Warby. Yeah, jeez, <laughs> got um, them both I, in there, boy. I, I was distracted from the key solo. I will say this about Yost, and this is true of not just him, but musicians in general. I can tell when a musician is really in the zone, really happy about what they're doing, and I think the performances go to another level with that. That's that artistic freedom. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. Okay, are you going to reveal your mystery key thing that you've That's asked? what's next. I'll just play 30 seconds of this clip. Just to embarrass us again. And just to embarrass everybody. So I... I still think that this is going to be like some stupid thing, and he's going to go, you didn't know that was Phil Collins playing? Uh, <laughs> like <laughs> so I shared this clip with the guys this morning, listeners, and I was like, hey, you guys ever heard of this? And you guys didn't hear of it. No. Nope. Oh, and the thing about this particular keyboard player that I love is, same thing, plays it different every night. Dude's a great songwriter. It's a mini Moog solo, and he's like twiddling knobs as he's playing, and he was doing this back, you know, when Keith Emerson and Rick Wakeman were doing the same thing. He was another very hot mini Moog player at the time, so I'll play a little bit of it, and uh, I'll reveal it. given some cl- more clues and i'm going to take one last guess should I just tell you you're not ne- you're never going to guess if you have i don't think yet. so but is that herbie no okay wait i got one more guess too all right here's a hint he back in the 70s covered several top 40 songs and made his own top 40 songs i was gonna say rich castellano can you guys hear the piano yeah you ready yeah Billy Joel? No! (laughs) Man, that sounded like pressure. Okay, should I just tell you? Yeah. Yeah. Blinded by the light. Oh, that's Manfred Mann. Manfred Mann. Wow. I would have never gotten there. I would never have gotten there. So that song is Martha's Madman, and he he does like 20-minute versions of it. It's only on some live album. I was a huge Manfred Mann fan back in the day. Um, we talked about bass solos and is there a place for them? Hell yes. <laughs> bass players say yes. <laughs> Let's just go right to the Chris Squire solo. Mm-hmm. 
was one of the first people that did put a lot of floor pedals in with a bass. Mm -hmm. So you hear the wah, you hear the flanger. And he's just, he's just destroying it. I mean, it's, he is destroying it. The sound that he's getting out of it is amazing. The only person I think made a bass sound better than that is Jocko. To me, Chris Squire was magical on a bass. Mm-hmm. Are those from Yes Songs? Yeah, that's from the fish from Yes Songs. So I was looking around and I did find an example of Jocko, but it's, it's kind of a weird one. It's not what you would expect. It's not off Weather Report. I found this reference to a band called Trio of Doom. And they're kind of a one-hit non-wonder. It was Jocko, John McLaughlin, and Tony Williams. John McLaughlin and Tony Williams both are alumni of Miles Davis. I'm turning into Ariane, but um, Miles <laughs> Davis. I'm going to start having, <laughs> start having Miles, Miles Davis bingo, bingo cards. <laughs> but anyway, this band it was all improvisational. They did one gig in Havana, and it was kind of like, sadly, the beginning of the end for Jocko. Because he sort of melted down on the tour, and they never did another album. And yeah. but let's listen. It's uh, it's pretty all over the place as you would expect with these three guys. <laughs> There you go. I wanted to make sure we got some Jocko in there. I like when Jocko is way up on the neck. So this one last one I want to talk about, it's from a Billy Cobham album. This is from Spectrum. Spectrum has got to be one of the top 20 albums ever made. And the song's called Torin Matador. What I want to kind of highlight from this is circle back to what we talked about earlier. And that is Tommy Bolin, who's kind of a rock guitar player, plays on this album. And the story goes that Billy handed Tommy a bunch of sheet music, and he's like, sorry, man, I don't read music. And all right, okay, we'll just jam in D and follow me. So here's a portion of this song where it's Tommy Bolin and Jan Hammer just wailing on it. You know, you think about a guy who just shows up, doesn't really know the song, and it's, and his job is, all right, you got to play along with this thing, mm-hmm. and that's what he delivers, and it's like, holy crap, you know, what a gift. All right, ready to wrap this up? Yep. Yes. What I have really come to appreciate over the past couple of years as I'm trying to become more of a musician, frankly is the skill that so many musicians have and the skill that's required for somebody to be a real musician, mm-hmm. you know, like a studio musician, for instance, yeah. somebody who uh, shows up to play on a Steely Dan album, for instance, they'll bring in 27 different guitar players. Each one delivers their best. Each one's completely different, but just the ability to do that. And just about every album that we've listened to as people who appreciate music, so much of what we think is written down, I think just sort of happens in the studio. That's the thing that's really amazed me. And there's no rules is, is the thing. You know, some of it is improv, some of it is scored. But the fact that so much magic does happen in the studio with people of such great skill, it's like the more I learn, the more I realize I don't know. That's a good wrap up. I like that. Musicians are amazing people. We should be thankful. Highlighting the skill of these folks and making sure we take a moment to appreciate that. I just want to close with shout out. Is that the right, the right thing to say? Let's ask a Gen Z person if we're using the words correctly. <laughs> it's okay, boomer. Go ahead. I need to phone a hipster. <laughs> but then there are no Gen Z people listening to this show. <laughs> so uh, David Gilmore is one of my favorite guitar players of all time. And the reason I want to end with Comfortably Numb is it's a really great song, but it has two incredibly amazing guitar solos. 
Yes. They're over different structures. Uh, melodically and harmonically, they're different, but they're both just gorgeous. And then here's the second solo, which is really great because it's uh, it's in more of a minor key and it just really closes out the song really just beautifully. Just want to play the whole damn thing. There you have it. Thank you very much, Craig. Yes. All right. We tease you about the jazz stuff, but I get a lot out of it. Yeah. It widens my understanding of music in general. Absolutely. So I appreciate well, that. You know, we, we were sitting around drinking old fashions and came up with the idea for this episode, and I kind of didn't want to nerd out too much. So that's why I just played a whole bunch of jams. It was good. But at least we talked a little bit about Mixolydian at the very beginning. Yeah. Awesome. As we always like to do, we, we try and get some kind of recommendation out of it. So, Craig, where do you recommend people go next to learn more about this or experience it more? Well, as far as music theory and crap like that, that's just got to be a voyage of self-discovery. But I think from the stuff that we talked about, I'm just going to go out on a limb here and say people should listen to Yes songs. The recording is not spectacular. But the musicianship and the playing and the soloing is just so raw and beautiful. It's the classic Yes lineup, but it's got a Bill Bruford track or two. I forget exactly. And it's live versions of all the Yes songs that old school fans love. And if you haven't spent time listening to Yes songs, you should. And a shout out to my sister whose birthday was yesterday. I pretty much stole her Yes songs album and uh, just bore it to dust. (laughs) Nice. Lee, you have anything to add there? If you really want to just get into piano improv, I really recommend picking up a Peter Cater album. That guy just does entire albums of piano work that are really huge improvs. Uh, randomly, I'm just going to recommend Dancing on Water, but I think he has like 40 albums out, so you could pick up pretty much anything off of his. Awesome. And you know, I don't really want to venture too far into recommendations because it's a little bit outside of my ken. But on the topic of music theory in general, I would recommend just going on YouTube and watching a bunch of Rick Beato videos where he breaks things down. I knew you were going to say that. That's connected the dots for me on a lot of music theory. And also he has people that are friends of his on and they do break down some improv and they explain how you do some of that. What Craig talked about, the connective tissue, like going to this and then switching modes or whatever. Yeah. As we exit tonight, don't forget, folks, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at UP3Show and contact us via email at UP3Show at gmail.com. We also have our new webpage up, so it's UP3Show.com. We definitely want to hear from you about what kind of topics that you'd like to hear us cover on the show, what you like, what you don't like. I check and I follow the Twitter, so you can definitely add us there if you want to get your words into us very quickly. If you want to show us some support, it's really, really easy. You can support us non-financially just by following us and subscribing on Podbean at up3show.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And also, please take a moment to write a review. This is really important. It helps to make sure the show pops up in all of the search results and helps other folks find the show. If you would like to support us financially, don't forget we are on Patreon at patreon.com slash up3show. And I think Lee's going to have some Longer Dream Theater content going up there pretty soon for one of our higher tiers. That's right. We have the Longer Dream Theater episode up, so you get exclusive content that you wouldn't normally get. All right, and we'll talk to you guys next month. Thanks. Bye. 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 Hey, folks. Tony here. If you made it this far, congratulations. You're getting everything you can out of this podcast episode. As a reminder, we're a podcast about commentary and opinion on prog music. We use samples of music to make our point and to teach others. 
We make no claim of copyright to any of the music featured in our samples and strongly recommend that you support the artists we talk about by buying their albums and merchandise or seeing them live. If you're an artist and you'd like for us to change how we've used your content on the show, please contact us directly so that we can work together.